Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sheila Shoiga and welcome to Ready To Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort or simply entertain you. In this episode, I speak to Senator Lynn Ruan. I think that's what makes me the saddest. I don't regret a lot of things in my life because I think, you know, we, we make the decisions that get us to where we are. And luckily, I'm not on drugs and I'm not in prison and I'm not dead. So I have to respect and accept the, 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 the decisions that I made through life. But when my daughters hit certain ages, I felt incredibly sad for myself as a teenager I didn't feel sadness at the time so it's definitely a sadness I'm implanting on it now like I think there's teenage years I missed out on in terms of innocence in terms of not having to worry about things and I just I won't ever really know what that's like to have you know so I do look at some other kids that have that are living more like age appropriate lives at the ages that they are and I kind of think you know, I wonder what that <laughs> I wonder what that was like. Yeah, okay. Do you know what I mean? Lynn lives in Killinarden and Tala with her two daughters, Jordan, who's twenty-two, and Jaylin, who's fifteen. And in this conversation, she talks about her childhood, experimenting with drugs from the age of twelve, finding out she was pregnant at fifteen, and how a community education initiative called Uncusson, developed by Catherine Zapone and the late Anne Louise Gilligan, helped her massively in life. She's been a senator for six years now and recently completed a master's in creative writing and she was the dream to chat to. She cares deeply, she's inquisitive, authentic and refreshingly honest. And I started by asking her about a recent project with an unlikely partner, actor of stage and screen, the one and only Miriam Margulies. Yeah, I think it's it's odd in the sense that we're like an unlikely couple, but yet we're both have similar energy levels in the world so it's like there's no even balancing out there of that energy like okay. you know so it's kind of like this could be really good like or really really dangerous <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah we done um we done a documentary um which will air in april about lady gregory oh yeah the founder of the yeah. the abbey very good. So as part of that, we obviously traveled together to the west of Ireland and different mm. places that would be, I suppose, places where Lady Gregory was. Like Cool Park. And yes. All. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we get to see it on what channel? Uh, RTE. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it will be. It's, I think it's their spring kind of catalogue next year which it was really it was really amazing to work with her so Miriam Margali is like you know this summer was standing in the garden in Killinardin Estate and driving around Killinardin in a camper van you know and <laughs> uh, it was just brilliant yeah, yeah it was brilliant it brought a, a, an awful lot of energy and um, as well as the fun as well uh, 
like Miriam has so many layers so you learn so much from mm. her so you're kind of moving in and out of having the crack and then just actually you know getting to see who she is on a, on a day-to-day basis and just how actually like how politically aligned we are both backgrounds very different backgrounds yeah but very much uh the same kind of fundamentals fundamentals that's yeah. very cool because yeah like what we know of her she's done an amazing body of work but yeah. like whenever we see her say on the likes of graham norton or whatever she's just brilliantly unfiltered yes that, and it's so refreshing. It is refreshing and it's it's in honesty. You know what I mean? It's like how many of us are so authentically ourselves yeah. in every day. We all have a public life, a private life. They're not synonymous to each other. Yeah. You know, we want to pretend that who we are out there in the world is exactly who we are at home. But like, that's that's not true. But I think it might be true for Miriam Margulies. I think if you're going to get right to the heart of like an authentic life. Yeah. I think she has it, you know, I think she's extremely honest and transparent. But isn't that you too? I hope so. I think to a, I think to a a degree, I mean, I definitely think for me though, there's, I definitely probably filter some things I, I say, uh, to an extent, but I think we are similar. I don't filter them in terms of lie about them, but I definitely probably package things. I probably yeah, we learned, probably all do that, yeah, don't we? You know, I package things. So I'm quite honest, but I try and how do I deliver that honesty? You know, yeah, where I don't yeah. think she ever thinks about how she delivers the honesty. She just delivers the honesty. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> do you know I what I mean? You. I think that that's kind of the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're getting to do really interesting work at the moment, like separate to politics, because you've had a you've had a fascinating few years. And initially when you became senator, obviously, you know, everybody wants to talk to you. You were on TV shows. Journalists wanted to talk to you because of, I suppose, where you came from and where you would come to. It seemed like it was such a, a juicy story for, for the media business, you know. But right now, you know, you've done you have your master's in creative writing. You're doing a lot of very creative work mm. now. Yeah. very interesting. So like when I was really, really young, I wanted to be a writer. Okay, and that was the dream. Yeah, that was the dream. And I had me typewriter and I would, you know, sell a tape pages together and give stories out in the house and, you know, joined Ina Blyton's fan club and didn't okay. realize she was dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, my mom taught me to read very, very young. Yeah. Um, and she bought me a book every week. So we went before the square existed. You'd get the little local link bus down to Kilimana and she'd buy me a ladyboard book and she said I would have it read on the bus on the way home and then I would read it over and over and over and over again so she had to advance me up through books at a very young age so my imagination was always there my ability to observe I think it's like just creativity but I think I have what I'm learning about myself is that I have a great ability to observe a lot of things happening around me all at once and tread the narrative between them together so I retain a lot of information and I've used that in a creative way to be able to then capture snapshots, I think, of people's lives mm. through writing or through storytelling or through, you know, conversations. Yes. You seem to me to be somebody who's very inquisitive and investigative about things. Like even when I was, you know, I suppose doing doing a little bit of research ahead of chatting to you and... You know, I suppose where you came from and I suppose access to drugs was it was very it was it was freely available. And am I right in thinking that I don't know, 14, 15, you got your hands on heroin. But instead Mm. of actually, okay, I'm going to experiment with this because I've been dabbling in other drugs. I'm going to go head down to the library and I'm going to I'm going to learn about it. Yeah. I think uh, I think there's probably a few parts of my character that comes together in that scenario is mm. one of them being uh, wanting to understand the drug because I was observing like all of us were observing uh, the kind of impact of heroin around us. I what I, I think maybe the fact that I was reading so much and from so young, it made me not afraid to learn a little bit more about things at the time rather than just take things at face value. So even in school, I was very inquisitive. I would have been called disruptive. Yeah. But I was actually just quite eager to know to more. Yeah. I was the kid that was the why, the why, 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 you know, so you kind of wanted to, 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 to shut me up, you know, so you could get on with your curriculum. I think with heroin, I really wanted to use heroin, you know, I, um, I, I, but I also was quite conscious that there was a lot of stuff happening in the community at the time and people were struggling and I could see they were opening methadone services. I don't think all like, 
you know, early teenagers are observant to that that extent. I wouldn't think so. No, uh, but but I did. I think it was just a natural characteristic. I don't know whether yeah. I developed it or it's something that you're born with, that you are just taking in your surroundings all the time. All the time. Yeah. And the fact that like nowadays we can go to the phone and we can type something into Google and find the information, but you had to go to, to, the, to the library. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating when you think about it because am I right in thinking you actually had the heroin, yeah. like the heroin, do you yeah. hear me? But you had you had <laughs> yeah. it on you yeah. while you were going into the library yeah. to read I, up about it. Yeah, like, I mean, and and there was many times I was around heroin before and after that, but really? that one was quite secretive at the time, actually, because I think it was, I think I remember me and my friend discussing that we would get it together and then sh- she seemed to kind of back off from that and then I went and got it anyway and then I backed off from that. Um, some of our friends were already using uh, heroin Um I would have already seen people use heroin in front of me, both intravenously and uh, smoking. Um, but that was the first time, I suppose. And and it was and, and I don't understand either way I removed myself from the group from either because so many of us were doing things in a, in a groupish kind of way. Mm. But there was something in me that was being a little bit secretive about, well, if I try it, I won't tell any of them that I've tried it. And my other friend seems to not, I don't know if she really wants to anymore. But then I, I went to the library and I remember reading, uh, I remember reading books that I didn't really understand, actually. Yeah, well, what age are you getting? 14. I was about 14, 14. You know, so, th- so I didn't really actually, I remember even, I can remember walking into the library and the kids, I remember even where those type of books were because it wasn't right. a part of the library I'd ever been in before because they were adult books, they were science books, they were, you know, they were about addiction. They weren't a, a genre that I'd had to look course, for before. Yeah, yeah. So I remember they were to the left of the old, the library has been kind of done up since then, but I remember them being uh, to the left and I remember sitting down and, and reading them and not truly understanding all the words but I remember reading about methadone at that time and you know methadone being used as a substitute for heroin and how you know and then I was like well there's something about this that tells me that I will be fully under control under the control of this drug so I think there's another element of my character I think there's a lot of luck as well but there's another element of my character that I think uh, likes to be in control okay so yeah. I don't like the unknown you know I don't like sitting in the unknown um, I'd rather face the reality of something uh, even if it's really really terrible um, rather than not really know what's going on. So I was like, I think heroin is going to remove my ability to be in control. Yeah. And I didn't, I wanted control more yeah. than I wanted the absence of control, you know? So I, I, and which, but then what's really silly is when I look back now is I was street buying methadone and taking methadone, which I could have just been, I could have become equally as addicted to because it's a, it's just an opiate substitute. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like, I was doing these really sound logical things while also also showing the sheer naivety as well of me as a child, you know, so you didn't take heroin, but was like drinking methadone on the street. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know, yeah, so it's you. kind of, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So I was, I wasn't like this model child that was like oh I knew what heroin was and I didn't do it something stopped me doing heroin but I was still doing something else that I could have easily just ended up with the same dependency to so yeah. there was kind of contradictions I suppose in I, my I young self yeah did you would, did you think like look this is this is a safer drug for me to to use like heroin is the, is the biggie as it were yeah I think it was just the association where methadone seemed like medicine and heroin seemed like a street drug or right, you know yeah. what I mean so like maybe it was I just had more chance of and you wouldn't have had access to methadone in the same way that you would heroin so you know to, to get methadone you at that time with me being so young as well I would have had to known someone that was selling methadone and most people obviously were on methadone for their own use but they would they would uh, reduce themselves, say, down from, you know, 60 mils or 25 mils to 10 mils and they'd live off 10 mils and then they'd sell the rest of their methadone, not even usually to make money, but sometimes to help other people because the list for the clinics were so long yeah. that people were trying to help each other in terms of having access to methadone instead of using heroin. So the times that I took methadone, I just happened to be with somebody else that had methadone. I wasn't I get seeking saying, it yeah. out as such. Yeah. yeah. And like in terms of other drugs, you you had been dabbling in in cannabis as well. Cannabis, e cocaine, speed, yeah, yeah, the lot, uh, the lot, and benzos tablets and stuff. Yeah, and like this kicked off at what age? 
I'd say 12. It's always hard. I try and remember. It's like I try and remember yeah. that transition from from junior school to senior school, you know, uh, not junior school, it's from primary, primary school to secondary, secondary school. Yeah. And there's kind of a loop in there where a lot of stuff began to happen very quickly. Yeah. yeah and like, I suppose this is where, this is where, um, for somebody like me, when I'm listening to you, it's, 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 look, I'm going to be totally honest, very different yes. from what I experienced myself. That wasn't my reality at that age. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And that was the reality of the community in which you were living. Yeah. And many, many within the community, but there's other people within the same community because we're quite large communities that wouldn't have yeah. had the same experience as me. So, you know, it's like, for me, it's like some air communities have a higher concentration of these experiences, but it's not everybody's experience. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's definitely a higher concentration. The likelihood is higher. Um, there's statistically more people that will end up in, you know, because of poverty and drug use or crime or uh, all those different things, but it's not everybody's experience. Yeah. 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 Know? Yes. Yeah. And to get the drugs, there was also, you know, other stuff happening as in you, you've spoken about it quite publicly before that you did actually have to rob yes to get money to buy the drugs yes so like life was just it was, were you a bit unhinged at the time do you think um, I think at the time I was enjoying myself to yeah. some extent okay, as okay. well like you know yeah. um, was it a buzz yeah like I mean there's I know it's like when you, when you look back and you know I robbed from shops and from I remember it was Roach's stores at the time, was in the square long, long time ago. Um, and you'd be robbing perfumes and Levi's and, and that kind of thing. But there was also a sense of achievement sometimes in that as well, because I wasn't achieving in school any longer. I didn't like being there. And regardless of what the activity is, we often want to feel like we're good at something or we're providing for ourselves or that we're using our brain in a particular way. And sometimes, unfortunately, that's in a way that's, you know, society would say is is wrong and the laws would say is wrong. And, and they are obviously, you know, in terms of, of shoplifting and stuff. But I'd say at that young age, I, I also felt like I was good at something. Yeah, I can do this. Yeah. I'm getting away with it. Yeah. So, yeah. So you're in the library and and you go, nah, not for me. You flush it down the loo mm. in the library. Mm. Wow. And heroin is never something that you... Go to you, again. You go to again, right? I did not think about it again. Like I mean, okay. I did think about it, um, but, but whatever I, you read scared you. It, yeah, or it gave me some perspective. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd say it gave me just some perspective that, um, and I always gave myself permission. I think even at a young age to go, you're just not doing it right now. Like so, sometimes when you deny yourself something, it's sometimes as as a young person, like you know, it's like with sweets or if there's a kind of coke in the fridge, and tell your child not to go near it or whatever. If you deny yourself something, sometimes the relationship with it can become really excruciating. Yeah. So f I think like to kind of telling yourself that you know I'm not, I don't really know enough about this. I don't know if it's going to ruin my life or not. So I'm just not going to do it right now. But I may have different information on it, you know, further down the line. Do you know, yeah. so you're nearly just creating a different type of less strainful relationship with the idea of not doing something. You're giving yourself permission that you actually could change your mind, but not right now. That's unbelievably mature, isn't it, at that age? <laughs> yeah. To be having that kind of dialogue <laughs> almost with yourself about it, yeah. But the thing is, at the time, I wouldn't have realised that that was the dialogue. And I think that that's what's important is it's easy when you get older to retrospectively yeah. put them thoughts on, like they wouldn't have been as in-depth as that at the time. Do you know what I mean? So I wouldn't mm. have sat down and spent a half an hour going and saying it like, in the clear yeah, way yeah, yeah. that I'm communicating it now. Mm. It would have been much more quick decisions. Like, nah, Jays, I don't really know what that's all about. So maybe I shouldn't use it. And then you're kind of off again to something else. So the depth and the layers kind of get built on later on. And you can see, you know, when you're when you're older and you're retrospectively kind of reflecting on your life, you're, well, why would I make that decision and not that decision? And you can put, bit more of a, a vocab on it. I definitely wouldn't have had the same vocabulary sure. on it that I am now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, again, you know, I've, I, I said you were very mature, but I suppose you were extremely streetwise because you had to be. Yes. You had to be. And that was probably the difference. Like if I, if you were to look at me at the same age, say, if we were to have a young Lynn and a young Sheila, you would run rings around me <laughs> because I would have been so young. Yeah. And childlike, I yeah. suppose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's Whereas, what makes me 
the saddest. I don't regret a lot of things in my life because I think, you know, we, we make the decisions that get us to where we are. And luckily I'm not on drugs and I'm not in prison and I'm not dead. So I have to respect and accept the, 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 the decisions that I made through life. But when my daughters hit certain ages, I felt incredibly sad for myself as a teenager. Okay. I didn't feel sadness at the time. So it's definitely a sadness I'm implanting on it now. Like, I think there's teenage years I missed out on in terms of innocence, in terms of okay. not having to worry about things. And I just, I won't ever really know what that's like to have, you know. So I do look at some other kids that have that are living more like age appropriate lives at the ages that they are. And I kind of think, you know, I wonder what that, <laughs> I wonder what that was like. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing, I suppose, you know, life experiences shape us. They do. And if you're, if you're, if you're catapulted into experiencing kind of the frenzy of, of drug, drug taking, or whatever it is at a young age, unfortunately, yeah, your innocence is taken. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's okay. Like it's not stuff I, um, I think I've done enough work on yourself, work over the years, um, that I'm, I'm in a good place with that stuff. Do you know what I mean? Cause I also, um, like if you were to separate adult me from like, you know, the child me and look and go, I'm also extremely proud of how that child navigated life. And I'm also sure. extremely proud how that child ensured that the adult me continued to advocate for anyone that's ever had experiences like me. Well, that's it. Do you know yeah, look so, what you're doing. Yeah. Look so how you're making I have a difference. To, yeah. So even though I can have a moment of, oh God, like mm. what would it have been like if Lynn didn't have to experience those things? You know, you know, I can, I can think about that for a moment and recognize it, but I'll still step, I suppose, straight back into the stronger position, which is, well, here we are now and, and what are we doing? You know? Yeah. 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 And I suppose a huge turning point as well in, in terms of where your life perhaps might've gone was you were in, you were in a relationship, you and your boyfriend found out that you were pregnant and you were 15 at the time. Yes. So again, young, probably not planned, uh, but yet, the, lots of positives came from that. Yeah, not planned, but not protected either. You know yeah. what I mean? So <laughs> there's yeah. kind of a fine line in there sure, about sure. like um, whether I was overly worried about getting pregnant or not, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just stepped into pregnancy like it was meant to be, like I wasn't 15, which is, again, like I was driving my daughter, um, her, her, my youngest girl is in transition year and... Uh, so she gets her junior cert results tomorrow. But oh, when wow. I was driving her to her junior cert uh, a few months back before this, whenever it was, but I can't even remember now, it's been that long since she said mm-hmm. it. But when she was sitting her junior cert, we're driving in the car and she looked at me and she said, Jesus, ma, you were like eight months pregnant when you were going to do your junior cert. And it was kind of like, it was like, what the hell? Like she was saying to me, what the hell is yeah. that like? Do you know? And yeah. I was like, yeah, like I'm looking at her going to do her junior cert. I was eight months pregnant sitting my junior cert or seven months. I was, I remember I was quite big anyway. I had a, quite a big bump, you know. Uh, and you did it, fair play to you. And I did it. And, you know, it's really surreal then to look at her and go, you know, but do you know what? If she be in that same position as well, you, 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 you just, you, you just respond to whatever's happening. And my parents were, were amazing. They mm. responded very well. My parents weren't used to the stuff that I was bringing to their door. Right. You know, my, my mom was from a big family of 10 and from Finglas. So not unaware of hardship and, and, uh, unaware of, you know, like living on a, on a shoestring and stuff. And, but they, there was never any really criminality or anything amongst like, even though it was such a big family and there was no addiction and there was nothing like that. And then on my dad's family, he does those four buyers. They grew up in the tenements on Usher's Key and then Ballyferma and again no drug use and no criminality yeah. you know scutting on the back of a truck or something you know is the most you'd hear them talking about that kind of stuff so my dad we used to like I used to mess call them Mr. Moderation so you know everything was okay in moderation right. he, he he tried to incentivize us not to smoke cigarettes he said he'd give us he'd get a loan out of credit union and give us a thousand pound if we hadn't smoked by the time we're 16 and then he'd extend something to 18 and so what what they were experiencing with me was extremely out of the ordinary yeah. for them, yeah. you know? And I think that's why I, I'm always so strong on, you know, when they say, you know, 
uh, you know, where are the parents? You know, they must have been dragged up and, you know, all this. It's like, well, you know, your family unit is only one small part of the external forces within society that can drive you to anything or protect you from anything. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And I too, uh, two beautiful parents that, that done absolutely amazing by me, shocked that I was pregnant. And uh, my dad left the room uh kind of didn't say anything to me and left the room really disappointed in me and I was really upset and he walked back in and he said sorry I shouldn't have walked off on you and they just they 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 and now I look at the skill set that I have mm. so if you look at me going to the to the library and making these certain decisions and we can't not look also beyond the fact that I did have two parents that attempted to keep me safe. So yeah. I had an idea of what safety was. Yeah. Where so many families have also are struggling. My parents, my dad was a presser in a, in a, in a, in a, in a machine factory. And my mom was a machinist and worked in Uchia, yeah. um, doing thermostats. So even though we didn't have little, uh, I still knew what it was to be safe. Mm. So that probably helped me make some positive decisions, even in those toughest of situations. Just what you said there about your dad, it sounds like your parents, you know, um, I know you said to me before we started chatting that, you you know, your dad passed away a number of years ago, but mm. and your mum, you're still very close to her to this day. They really do sound like they were and are brilliant people. And when you said that about your dad walking out of the room and coming back in like that, that's just very powerful. And that's what a man. Yeah. And he grew up in Catholic Ireland. You know what I mean? He grew yeah. up, he was born in the 30s and, um, you know, and my mom would be from a somewhat Catholic family as well in terms of her parents. And, you know, so there was other people having very different experiences than me at that time. Like, I mean, that was, it was the year 2000. Um, you know, if that had been 10, 15 years before, you know, we all know like how that went for so yeah. many people. But I've no doubt that my mom and dad, regardless of any situation, does continue to pile on the supports. Yeah. And I think it shows then, I think when we isolate and abandon people, you push them to the fringes. My mom and dad came closer. Every time I tried to move, they came closer and they came closer. And that just continued. And I think... I think that's probably what stands to me more than anything. Yeah. Wow. Because, I mean, you know, as we were saying, like, you know, drugs were part of your life. You know, you might have been you know, robbing the odd time to get money to get the drugs and whatever. But then when you found out you were pregnant, everything changed. Yeah, I stopped taking drugs. Yeah. I've, I've a strong will, apparently, I can see, like, because it's not easy to just stop taking drugs. So I always say that with a caveat because I don't judge other people who have struggled in that case. So I always want to say that, yes, I managed to do that. Yes, that's not that's not the norm when, when people are, are, do have addictions. Do you know what I mean? But my mom used to smoke. Uh, I've no memory of her smoking, but when she met my dad, she, she stopped smoking. Uh, my dad was like a footballer and a ref and he was all like, so uh, I don't, he must have, he must have shamed her out of smoking. <laughs> um, but she gave up smokes when she was really young mm. uh, before she had us. But I always remember my mom talking about, um, you know, not drinking alcohol or not smoking during pregnancy and stuff. Now, she wouldn't have any had any science to go with that. It was more just an innate thing, never a preachy thing, just a matter of fact thing. So I set quite easy into that structure, I suppose, of, you know, trying to maintain a healthy pregnancy. Yeah. Um, which helped me then because it meant that I disrupted Yes. The drug taken. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I, I know it was, must have been a huge shock, shock to the system being pregnant at 15. I mean, obviously your daughter is a blessing, but she really was. Yeah. In the sense that it was a catalyst for positive change in your life yes. also. Yeah. And that positive change happened, is still happening in a sense because, you know, so much was endured and there was so many fractures, I suppose, in my early teens that moulded um, many parts of how I also reacted to life. So even though I was making positive decisions, there was also, I carried a lot of anger, I carried a lot of hurt, didn't really understand it. Um, was quite hurt in a collective sense for my community and the amount of people dying. Every time I would see the church just rammed again and again and again for funerals of young people. Um, I would um, I would think that I'm not a very individual person. I very much set myself into the, 
identity of the collective of my community. Do you know what I mean? So I, I struggle to separate myself from what's happening in, in everyone else's lives, which can make it extremely difficult to, <laughs> to like go to sleep at night and not be going, how are we all going to, you know, be well and live happy lives and flourish. And, you know, and that's probably what led me to, to politics in the end as yeah. well, you know. Well, you're clearly a very empathetic person. Yes. You know, so you really feel when you, when you feel another person's pain. Yeah. So, even though the positive changes has happened during pregnancy in terms of interrupting the chaos, yeah. I still had a lot of hurt to work through, right through my, um, you know, through my teenage years and through my 20s and things continued to happen around me. Um, but yeah, I definitely you, wasn't as chaotic as I was. Okay. Yeah. Because you do say it there like about funerals. And I mean, you know, am, am I right in thinking if funerals because of dr- drug taking? Uh, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of everything. Okay. So for me, I look at funerals or the loss of life sometimes in communities that are like mine and similar to mine um, in any sort of, especially urban spaces, is um, risk taking do you know what I mean? So tragic death, you know, whether it's road traffic, whether it's driving too fast, whether it's overdose, uh, you know, whether it's mental health and then there's also suicide. And so I've had a, I've, I've experienced kind of a death across of array of different things. From an early age? From an early age, from around uh, 13. Okay. Oh. And um, from many different things. But I think s- sometimes deaths can occur at a higher rate when the ability to assess risk or the ability to have a safety net, like so you're very much living in the impulsivity of the moment sometimes in a community like that or in a, in a space like that. And that can sometimes lead you to making decisions that will potentially end your life. But that's mm-hmm. not the intention in that moment. Do you know what I mean? And it's trying to get past that, you know, and I think generationally, my like my my age group at that time, there's a couple of generations across Tala that have had that, condensed massively you know where there's some groups so my group of friends have lost loads of friends there's loads of us you know I count every month I, I'm remembering you know two or three people across that month in right, my okay. head and I think about them and and that and then there's other I look at young people now in my community that are going through the exact same and they're burying friends and I'm looking at their little Instagram pages and they're sharing their pictures of their 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 dead pals and and debt debt becomes normal so there's a stage even where you're, I was impacted by debt in a way that if a year had nearly passed where somebody hadn't died I'm like you're recognizing the absence of a debt that year where most people recognize the abs- recognize the presence of a yeah, debt in their year yeah we I got to the stage where I was doing the inverse wow you know which is hard very sad yeah extremely extremely yeah. so yeah, yeah. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. 
but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I suppose what you've been able to do for your own kids because of your own upbringing, because of your own experience, you were mm. able to bring all of that learning to the table when you when you were parenting yourself. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important to go like when we're looking at supporting young people like I was is supporting whole families because, you know, even though my parents had that level of stability, when you look at other parents, you can't separate them from their histories and their histories might have been very different. So their histories might have been, there was uh, very like literacy issues or, you know, even being able to advocate. You know, there's so many parents that are like, the anxiety of even going to a parent-teacher meeting. They care massively about their child's schooling, but they're absolutely petrified of sitting in a parent-teacher meeting and having a discussion because of the ability to advocate and the ability to let go of their own negative schooling experiences. And, you know, so I had parents that were in a quite stable position, but other parents cared as much as my parents. Uh, Like there was no, it wasn't that anyone cared any less but the conditions in which they were living as well was also difficult. So everyone's house kind of had just something else, something different to contend with, I think, you yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So when your baby girl was born. Yeah. Um, it was obviously a, a, a joyous time. It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really good. <laughs> yeah. And she was born perfectly normal and gorgeous. And now she's a grown woman of 22. 22. And she is flying it in her life. She is. Yeah. She's acting. She's acting, so she's acting since she's 13 and uh, her first film was actually set in Kilnard and it was a film by Frank Berry called I Used to Live Here about uh, cluster suicides. Okay. So quite hard hitting subjects that yeah. she knows well. Like, I mean, you don't grow up with a 15 year old mother without being very close to the fringe with her, you know, because she was basically hanging around with me and my pals, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean, for and large almost... portions of her life, you know. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine there was a lot of yeah. both of you growing up together. Were, yeah. Yeah, together. Yeah. 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 And and you and her dad have a great relationship. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really good. So, I mean, you had your folks, they were great support. You were navigating being 15, being a teenager yourself, all the changes you were going through yourself and being responsible for this yeah. little baby. Yeah. That is full on. Yeah. And I, but it's mad. I think when you're that young and... Just get on with it. I think I was just getting on with it. Like, I think it would be wrong of me to look back and go, oh my God, that was so hard. Because actually... I don't think I had the capacity to digest if it was hard or not. And I did have supports and, uh, you know, I did have like a a mother and a father that very much co-parented with me. You know, she has a dad who loves her very much, who has had his own struggles in life. So we, we all try and mind each other. And, you know, and he has his family, which are quite involved in, in all the kids' lives on their side of the family. So it was always important to try and manage that and keep those supports there. So I definitely was very supported. And of course, moments were very difficult because I was managing my own stuff as well. Also really wanting to be okay. Like I wanted to be okay. I wasn't always okay. Um. But yeah, I think it would be unfair for me to say, oh, I was found it extremely, extremely difficult because I don't think I knew any different at the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I suppose then a few years later, you then go into a a, a program on mm. Cusson, isn't that mm. what it was called? Mm. It still exists? It does. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what, I suppose, what you did there? Yeah. So at 16, I went into Ancasson which was uh, an educational facility uh, for women in the Tallow West area. I had got a letter from the social welfare, I think, at the time to say that there was uh, like interviews or they were sending me for an interview. And I think there was a small payment, which is small. I'm saying small now. It wasn't small because it was like £30 or something at the time on top of your social welfare, which would have been like a lot for for me. Um, And... I went for the interview and I got it, but you could bring your child with you. So Rainbow House was the creche within the facility. So you were able to come, I think it was like three days a week or four days a week I was there. And I brought Jordan at one, she was one and she went in. And so she was getting what she needed in in her day and I was getting what I needed in my day. And I think it just really was crucial I think at that time because I was 16 I wasn't going to go back to school so it was like well what's going to happen now 
am I going to be at home? My parents both worked. Um, so was I going to be at home and uh, or was I going to use, I suppose, what was being offered to me to be able to get some sort of an education, mm. uh, which I just took it, you know, and uh, it, it, it really worked for me. But also the style, because school was too regimented, it was too blunt and forceful and there's just something about the 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 structural nature of school that doesn't uh work very well for me or never worked very well for me and in Ancasan it was like soft furnishings and the sofas were soft and they were in a circle and there was like uh like I remember the first day or in the first week or I I obviously have this image because the colors I remember sending out were like pink and purple satins and candles in the middle and they put on meditation music before the class started to try and help us to come into the room now I could not like I laughed and you know laughed under my breath the whole time I was a child like you know I just thought this is mad but over time because I was there for two years and I think that's why it's so important that the intervention was two years as well because it takes time for your your body and your your senses to let that new way of of anything in you know yeah so for me like regardless of the education I received there it was the the structure and the ability to just think for a moment I think that allowed me figure out what my next steps were. Yeah. Yeah. Huge part of your. Yeah. Like I suppose, s- transformation. Totally. Sort. Like yeah. I, I think I look back now and even though Ancasan is still there and it's doing work, we haven't replicated that across the country and we really should be replicating situations like that because what we're looking at like is, you know, now people are obsessed with like job activation, like just activating women into jobs that are also just poverty wages, you know? So Mm. like, and this less emphasis on this kind of community development style, healing, loving, trauma informed approach to life and learning, which will ultimately take longer in the beginning. uh, But in the long run, uh, you know, kind of, is a feedback loop into society because people are much happier and healthier yeah. for, for for participating. So you'd love to see more of these around the country? Oh, 100%. I mean, especially with childcare. I mean, yeah. one of the biggest barriers is is childcare and Rainbow House was beautiful and Jordan was there for two years and, you know, it probably like she's an amazing artist. She can, she, her dad taught her to hold a pencil at a very, very young age because um, he used to sketch and now she has, she has far out talented him at this stage. Uh, but he taught her how to use a pencil very young. So it meant she was sitting in a classroom and she was getting to colour and engage in art and, you know, be able to put paint on a page and have access to that very young. And then me to collect her, you know, or my dad used to collect her sometimes. Like if I had something to do after Ankasan, he would walk. He was like retired pretty soon after uh, I had her or he was kind of reduced his hours. And sometimes he'd walk over and collect her and stuff. But my dad was gassed. Like he, even when she went to school, like he would show up at the school to collect her and I'd be at the school going, I'm here to collect her then. Like, and he was like, yeah, I know, but uh-huh. I'll just, I'll collect her as well. Yeah. You know? So there was always just two, there was so many times it was just two of us. Or then her dad would show up as well. And yeah. it's like, all of a sudden <laughs> there's three of us collecting her from yeah. school. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when did politics or the idea of, of getting involved in, in society in that way start to creep in? So I first went into addiction uh, working in addiction and developing addiction programs and a uh, kind of was probably going back to being in the library that day I kind of returned to that a few years later and kind of thought I actually am quite good at taking in information on a, in a subject that I have keen interest in I can take in a lot and addiction seemed to be one of those so I, I began to study addiction in, in IT Tala on a Wednesday evening and then I got employed locally to develop a, a, a service for young heroin users they were had started using heroin at 13, 14 and um, I was not that far ahead of them you know in terms of life I was only 17 and 18 at that stage but I think that that helped uh, bridge that gap I suppose between services and young people sure. you know they were able to relate to exactly um, she gets it yeah so from there I just worked really hard I was running my own service in Bluebell at the age of 21 and wow. so I was starting to see society then beyond my own community and I was seeing that how my society was or my community was set up was also replicated in other urban 
parts of uh, the country, especially because then I was in Bluebell and then I was spending time in Fatima and Dolphin, uh, mostly mostly south side kind of places or, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, the southwest or whatever it is. Anyway, I call all 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 this side of the all this side of the Liffey is just the south, south side, side. Um, much to the dismay of of Dublin Six. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so. For me, I started again with the my ability to observe and the questions and the why. And it's like, well, why is that like that? And why are they cutting off their funding there when we don't even get? And I started again, that inquisitive nature of, you know, Alice Mary Higgins always says to me in the chamber, like, uh, you know, you're such a detective, yeah, like you're yeah. such a detective. So I obviously just have that in me, you know, to kind of so examine things. So I done that. And then politics I don't politics wasn't and still isn't something that I'm seeking out <laughs> you know as a career I think what I want I to love do, that still isn't yeah <laughs> <laughs> what I really what I want to do is I want I want people to just have you know equity of you know life equity of being able to flourish I don't want life to be a luxury for people I don't want uh you know, the way people are looked down on from communities like mine and how we're wrote about and how we're stereotyped and how it's generalized. You know, if one bad thing happens, it's like everyone is kind of, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just, for me, it's just the wrong way around society. And I think it makes me, I've gone through different stages where before it made me angry, before I thought I could fix it. Then I thought, uh, what's the point? So I go through all these different phases. Where are you I, at now? Where I'm at now is, uh, it, deep sense of I think sadness and concern um I don't I don't I'm 38 now and I'm like am I going to not that I'm near death around but it's like am I going to spend another 38 years trying to do the same thing and seeing people who I love and care about who others in society think are you know uh, monster sometimes um, is anybody really going to understand the connection between things like is anyone really going to change things or will will politics and policy always ultimately protect itself at the most affluent level even if people have good intentions so what I what I've learned over the last few years is there's plenty of politicians uh, that are from uh, you know the ruling parties that care and that have good intentions and goodwill but then it stops there. So they can see it. They have the analysis, but then nothing happens. And I think that's what scares me. They don't act yeah. on it. Yeah. Enough. So I thought, I think I thought for a long time, if you just bring a level of consciousness mm. across society, that that will ultimately potentially change things. I think what I'm worried now is that that's not enough. So now it's like, well, what is next? A part of me looks and goes, you know, do you flip back into radical action? You know, is it radical? Is it ground up movements demanding better taking over streets doing all of this and then you look at what's happening in East Wall which is not reflective at all of any sort of uh, you know issue that's 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 people that's disenfranchised people being whipped up into hate that they're they're not even applying an analysis to so that's not that's not that that's not the radical that I'm talking about yeah, you yeah. know so now I'm just at this crossroads whereas I'm in there six years and I've brought people along on particular points, but now I'm starting to worry is, is it just enough for them? Do I just massage their consciousness enough by having me there to say these things exist mm. and that they're comfortable that they just, oh, well, Lynn is there or Senator Flynn is there or this person is here, or that person's here. So we know all those issues happen and we're going to agree with Lynn and we're going to say that is terrible that that's happening. Nobody should be living like that. But that that's where it stops. That's what I'm that's where I'm at at the minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and of course, that would lead to huge frustration. And I can I can totally imagine that that you were angry. And I, I wouldn't blame him if you were still angry, especially if you're fighting the fight all the time and you're and you're saying these things all the time and you're 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 asking for change yeah. and help. Well, I think people conflict things, unfortunately. I think I think unfortunately as a as a society we don't give ourselves time to think well about situations it's yeah. constantly reactive so like for me poverty is such a driving force in so many things so like if you look at like if i speak out against say 
uh, the treatment of people in the penal system or uh, like advocate for uh, the spent convictions of people who have had convictions in their past. People don't uh, stop enough to make the treads between, well, I'm not saying that crime is okay. I think people think, oh, yeah, like, you know, you know, the senator for, you know, you know, wanting to like make everything legal or whatever. And it's like, well, no, like crime is still a thing. It still happens. But if we actually want to end the thing that we both agree we prefer there's less of, you have to actually change the conditions which create them in the first place. And that's you can't police your way out of those issues. Like we had the guillotine. Like if you look at the guillotine around, like, you know, uh, the guillotine, like people were murdered on front of everybody as a spectacle. You know, did that stop murder? It didn't. It just it just fed it just fed uh, an in-the-moment feeling of people that something was happening and somebody got what they deserved. Mm. But it didn't have a knock-on effect of making sure there was never any murder again. People were just guillotined for our own kind yeah. of, you know, yeah, yeah. morphed sense of justice or something. God, when you start looking at it like that, I suppose, I'll be honest, it's not something that I, I spend a huge amount of my normal day thinking about because the truth is, and this is where I suppose... And, and, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable even to say it, but I, I, I suppose I realise how privileged my own uh, upbringing was growing up in the West of Ireland, where I didn't have to contend with a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think privilege comes in, in many, many ways and there's nothing wrong with privilege. That's the thing. And I think I don't think we should make anyone feel in any way bad for their privilege. No, sure. But I but suppose it's, like it's what, important for us to be aware. That's it. That's what I was going to say. So yeah. like you going, I'm aware that I've had and other people, it's like, well, what do you do with the awareness? Do you know, yeah. do you uh, use that awareness to continue the stereotyping of others that weren't, didn't have privilege? Yeah, yeah. And it's just about trying to tease those things out, you know, and I think uh, power is a, is, is a big is a big part of this question. I mean, power comes in many, many ways and it's highly concentrated within bureaucratic systems and administrative systems and social welfare systems and all these things and those with the least power often don't necessarily know they've no power so when they can exercise power in the wrong way they do they exercise it on each other in violence they exercise on each other in criminality they exercise it on migrants coming into an ESB building so when you have little or no power right everyone wants to feel like they've agency and power so they'll find a way to use that power but in the wrong direction yeah you know yeah God, you open people's um, eyes to um, to really taking a look at things like it's probably not good enough for all of us just to kind of kick back and, uh, you know, get on with things. It's important to to, to look at it. And, and and sometimes it's it's ugly to look at it as in ugly by what I mean is that sometimes our own feelings on things, our own opinion on it, our own perception of it is a bit ugly. Yeah. That we think a certain way, as you said, even the most you know, open-minded people can sometimes automatically go to stereotyping. Mm. Because we do, I think. We, we, even if we think that we're, we don't make assumptions and oh, I'm very open and I'm this and I'm that. But, but unfortunately, sometimes assumptions can be made. Mm. And but we all do. I do. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's part of the human yeah. condition. And I think, I think there is a level of human conditioning to it. Um, but I think, I think one skill we have to learn is to not... Uh, acting on a stereotype so yeah. being able to Recognize watch, that watch you... it as it's passing oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm stereotyping I'm not going to let go of the fact that I still think that group of people do XYZ but what do you do with that so it's when you begin to use your stereotypes to 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 act as an obstacle to other people doing well or to act as a, a an oppressive tool mm. you know so I think it's okay for people to go to be able to examine where and when they're stereotyping and to not be kind of jumped on it yes on yeah that. yeah yes yeah, so the whole reacting and responding yeah. thing isn't it and becoming very observant you you spoke about when you went into Uncosson first and there was like nice meditation music <laughs> and it was and you were like what the hell's going on here it's been mental <laughs> but did you get into that kind of thing because you just seem to me like somebody who's when you're able to take that step back, sometimes a lot of people do that through being mindful, through those kind of practices that give you that sense of awareness of maybe I'm not seeing the full picture here. Maybe I do need to take a breath 
and have a have a pause before I, I, I speak. Mm. Do you do anything like that? I'm just as a matter of interest. Yeah, like some like I, I'm still quite reactive sometimes. I'm definitely less reactive than I was grown up. So I'm definitely, you know, developing all the time and sometimes you loop back around, have sure, to start again. Same, same as all, yeah. yeah. But uh I think uh Anne Louise Gilligan, I'll always th- remember teaching me about visualization more so than uh even the, the the meditative part of of that kind of stuff but so i don't meditate every day or anything but i definitely think i think there's something that we don't recognize about people is like congratulating people who can take time to just think and think well and that's about like philosophical thought and you know i i, I developed some initiatives in communities which is philosophy in the communities and we run philosophy groups in dolphin house and we run them with people in recovery and it's all that stuff about how can you yeah, think yeah. well um, so I try and do that I try and take philosophical concepts down to a very just non-academic level mm. um, but I also remember Anne Louise doing visualisation with us once in they had a bunk they had in the shanty so their original home they used to bus people, women out of Tallow West and in there to like have a secret education. Oh, uh, right. So their husbands would be in work or some of them would be in domestic violence situations or some right, of them would okay. have no schooling or so they would be back home and in the house before anyone arrived home. Oh. And they were having this kind of holistic, you know, experience mm. of education before Ankasan was even built. So in yeah. sometimes you could, it was a thing called Isabella's Day and they would bring you up there. And I went up there and I remember her doing some visualization about an animal. And I think I have a, an imagination, which probably that style of stuff suited me better than the sitting, just the sitting in silence, where the visualization where I could think about things, think about stories and narratives and futures and ideas and visions. So I remember there was something about an, an animal. And I remember I just kept thinking about this whale, this big whale. And I really, really lost myself in the visualization. I wasn't visualizing anything in particular in terms of like an outcome. It was just my mind was just visualizing everything you know and I really enjoyed that so I remember from there on in I used to do try and visualize um the potential that I could have in the world and I used to visualize being in a certain job knowing I was too young but going yeah but like if you were in there you do this and you do that and I think that gave me a false sense of confidence then in interviews because I'd already walked through what it would be like to be in that job so I'd you know it's a bit of you know you're kind of manipulating yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, you know, in a sense. Um, but I remember I used to visualize running off into the mountain because we live on the foot of the mountain. And when I would start to feel panic or start to feel uh, uh, down and I would have periods throughout my whole life of like, you know, low mood for a period of time, but all very manageable in a sense or just being used to it, I suppose. But I used to visualize running up the mountain and into like this big long grass you know like the yellow corn grass nearly and just sitting on the ground and the grass the kind of stems being way up over my head and just staying there for a little while so I in that visualization I used to be letting out like pain and crying Mm. and da 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 but I was in the in the in the in the thing and I don't know where that visualization came from I don't know whether Anne-Louise asked us to visualize something that day where we felt safe and that's what I'd conjured up but I continued to use that over a period of time uh, and I still sometimes do now. I just don't talk about them. They're all very, I just do them quite privately and yeah. quietly. Like, yeah, do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like if I'm in the chamber and I really disagree with what someone is saying, I haven't, there's a, there is a narration in my head where I literally narrate my response to them okay. a few times before I've even stood up. Do you know? So I've kind of. Because if you don't do that, you'll react, is it? Yeah, you'll be snappy. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I narrate it. So I think I've a, a potential just to, to narrate things that are about to happen and then also visualize things that can keep me safe. You've such a deep awareness of who you are. And I suppose, you know, your childhood was went at supersonic speed because of, of the environment and, and everything that happened to you and getting pregnant young and all the rest. But, you know, you have clearly done a lot of work on yourself as well. And I know through the process of writing the book, a lot of stuff came up. We didn't even really get into it, but yeah. I know you've spoken about um, you've spoken about rape yeah. um, and that was obviously I would imagine a very tough thing to do mm. to actually go there and, and be willing to share that with, yeah. with everyone um, but you know you spoke about Miriam at the beginning and Miriam Margulies being somebody who was truly authentic and owning who they are and it's like this is who you are like this the name of this podcast is ready to be real and I love talking to people I love having different conversations and people from I say it at the beginning all walks of life and that's what it's about and I love when somebody sits 
unashamedly embracing who they are and fully this is me. You have made such a brilliant difference so far. And like you're only what, six years as a senator? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You're yeah. 38. Mm. There's a long, long, long life ahead. Um, I can just see you still continuing to make such a positive difference, regardless of whether, it is, whether that's you staying in politics or not. But through you being you and now, I suppose, expressing your creativity and, and sharing your message in whatever way you do, I think it's going to only have a positive impact on all of us so I'm just really grateful to you I've thank you. absolutely loved this conversation you're an amazing person and it's been such a privilege to meet you thank you Sheila I enjoyed it very much very yeah. philosophical in the end wasn't it yeah it was <laughs> my favourite kind of chats <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends family or on social media and you can support what I do in all the usual ways by clicking follow giving a rating or leaving a little comment thanks a million you've been listening to Ready To Be Real Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.